Well, this last year, I've been asked a question over and over and over again. In all of the cultural trauma that we're living in, as Christians, many people have come to me and said, Gare, what do we do? What do we do? See, for many, Christians today are experiencing the first sign in their own lived experience of what other people say is a post-Christian culture, where Christianity is moving away from the majority to the minority, from the center to the fringe, from respected to disrespected, that many Christians are looking at what has been taught in schools, what their culture is in their workplace, the laws being passed, and they're asking the question, what do we do? What do we do as followers of Jesus? Do we do nothing? Do we accommodate? Do we stay silent? Do we resist? Do we take power? Do we compromise? Do we move out of LA? Do we, whatever it is, people are asking, what do we do? As followers of Jesus, how do we respond to what is going on in our city, in our culture? Of course, the key question is, what does Jesus do? And as followers of Jesus is, what does Jesus call us to do? In our passage this morning, we're looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before his death. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus comes at a time of great political turmoil where people are asking all the questions that we're asking today. What do we do? Rome had taken over. The people of God were persecuted in a minority. Ethics was at a low ebb. And people were wondering, what do we do? And the people of God were trying all sorts of different things. They had divided into five or six different types of camps and tribes, wondering how to respond. Some, called the Essenes, retreated. They moved out of the city and created a Christian bubble in the desert. Some were compromising. They were called the Herodians. They would compromise to try and fit into culture and keep faith alive, but in a compromised way. The zealots thought everyone else was a coward, and they formed a political movement to take over Rome, to take over and enforce the ethics of God. And into this context comes Jesus comes King Jesus to show that he is the king of all kings. And as he rides into Jerusalem, we see a paradigm for how Jesus as king brings his kingdom. And what we'll see, it's not retreat, it's not compromise, nor is it seizing power. So as we look at the question, what do we do? Let's look at Jesus. How does King Jesus bring his kingdom in these cultural time. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll read the triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It begins in verse 1. As they, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he, will, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. 
A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. In this passage, we see Jesus announcing himself as the king and giving us a paradigm of what it means to live in his kingdom. And I want to look at eight practices for living in Los Angeles in these cultural challenging times. I'm going to skim a little rock across all these eight practices in 23 minutes. We can drill down into each of one of these later, but I do want to give you an overview of what it means to follow Jesus in this cultural moment. You and I have been called to Los Angeles. How do I know that? Because you're here and God's sovereign over your life. And you have found yourself here to be a follower of Jesus in this cultural moment. So I want to give you eight practices of what it means to follow King Jesus in the turmoil in which we're living in. The first is this. The first practice of those who follow King Jesus is this. Relax. Relax. See, Jesus entered into Jerusalem not on a a white horse, part of a cavalry, panicking and fearing the Roman rulers seeking to take over. Jesus is the perfect picture of a non-anxious presence riding into Jerusalem on a calm donkey. He's the picture of peace. He's the picture of not being someone driven by fear of what is going on in the culture. Todd Hunter, Bishop Todd Hunter, wrote an article recently that said this. In the midst of a group of pastors, someone once asked Dallas Willard to pick one word to describe Jesus. Dallas surprised everyone by saying, relaxed. That sounds casual, right? Not the first word that might come to mind when it comes to Jesus. Someone might have said love or wisdom or authority or holy. But I think Dallas was getting at something important. Underneath who Jesus was, the kind of being he embodied was a relaxed, confident relationship with his father. So easy, isn't it, to react to what's going on in culture around us, in politics around us, in what we see in our society with fear, with panic. Oh no, what are we going to do? And yet Jesus, in the midst of of a turbulent time of the culture of the people of God was the picture of peace, was the picture of relaxed trust in the plans of his father. 
I love that in verse 4. It said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. In other words, to remind us that nothing going on is outside of the sovereignty of God. Nothing's happening in our culture. Nothing's happening in our city where God the Father looks at Jesus and flashes a look to the Holy Spirit and goes, oh my word, what do we do now? God's in charge. God is sovereign. And you and I have been placed in Los Angeles to outwork the eternal plans of God where he knows the beginning, he knows the middle, and he knows the end. And guess what? Jesus wins. Because Jesus has already won on the cross of Calvary. So whatever decisions you make, this school or that school, leave LA, stay in LA, that job or this job, buy that house, not buy that house, whatever decision you make, check your heart. Are you doing it from a place of fear or panic or from a place of a relaxed confidence in the purposes of God? Secondly, we're not just called to relax. We're called to invite. We are called to invite many in Jesus' time, particularly the zealots, thought that the solution was to coerce people into the kingdom of Jesus, was to take power and force people into the ethic of God. But Jesus was having none of it. Jesus didn't ride into Rome, take over Caesar's palace, and enforce his kingdom. He was a king of invitation. A king that came into Jerusalem inviting people to follow him. He called on people to follow him. He didn't order people to bow before him. The crowds came voluntarily to throw their cloaks before him. To throw a cloak meant to show your allegiance to someone, voluntarily to take off your authority and throw it down before someone else. And it's so important as we respond to what's happening in our culture, that we remember that Jesus is the king who blessed humanity with the greatest gift of free will. That even in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, he gave them a choice, a choice, and he honored the consequences of that choice. He never imposes himself. He's a king who woos, who invites, who loves people into his kingdom but never forces them to obey. So wherever we are in our city, whether we are in positions of influence or power in the school districts or in government or in your workplace, we're called to influence and to woo and to love, but never to force, never to coerce. That's why we love to do something here called Alpha, which is a series of dinners here eight Tuesday nights, and can't wait till we can open it up again where people can come and we invite people to consider Jesus. Jesus never coerced. He never nailed a prayer on the wall and said, everyone has to pray that prayer. He never put his legislation, his sermon on the mount, on the hallways and said, this is how it goes or you're out. He invited people. He is not a king of coercion, but a king of loving invitation. Thirdly, we are called to bless. We are called to bless. Have you noticed Jesus gets really angry in this passage? 
Not at the world, not at those who don't follow him, but at his own people. Verse 12, it says that he entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables. Why? He says, you've made my house into a den of robbers. You see, to understand what's going on here, you have to understand what the temple was for. The temple was divided into many different kind of courts. And the outer courts were the place where non-Jewish people, the non-people of God could come in and receive a blessing. Because Israel had been called by God to be a blessing. Do you remember the covenant with Abraham? I will call you and I will bless you in order to be a blessing. That your vocation as the people of God is not just to look inward at self-preservation, but to look outward and overflow the blessings of God to those around you. And the temple design was structured that way. And yet when Jesus arrived, far from seeing the nations come and be blessed by the people of God, they had turned those outer courts in a self-preservation way to make money from those who weren't in the people of God. They were fleecing the world, not healing the world. And so Jesus comes in, and with anger in his heart, not at the world for being the way the world is, but at the people of God for not stepping into their vocation, to step out of their own self-preservation, to step out of their bubble, and actually to bless the city in which they live. This is what Jesus got angry with. See, to follow King Jesus is to give the world a taste of the blessings of God that they might come in. I love that in verse 14. Jesus gives an example of what should be happening in the temple courts. He arrives and they're making money off the people of the world. But he says, look, this is what you should be doing. And in verse 14, it says this, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So you are called to the city to bless the city. You are called to the city, not just to take, but to give. Isn't it funny how Los Angeles has a reputation that no one comes to the city voluntarily. They all come just to make a name for themselves. It's not which city is the best city in the world to live in. Ooh, I'll live in LA. Los Angeles never meets the top 10 best places to live in the world. But people come here because they want to make a name for themselves. They want to succeed their business or their career or whatever it is that come here and they want to take from the city. And there's many good things about that. But as well as coming here to grow in your profession, to make it in whatever your dreams are, do you know that the greater calling on your life is to come and bless the city where God has placed you? To be a blessing. Jeremiah 29 says this, of those who were in exile, the people of God in exile, it says this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Now when God calls you into this city, which he has, he's not just called you to seek your own peace and your own prosperity. He's caused you to come, as Jesus did, to come and bless, to bless your community, to bless your school district, to bless your company, to bless your studio, to bless those who persecute you, to bless those who are your enemy. Your vocation as the people of God, wherever you are, is to bless. Blessed to be a blessing. Okay, number four. Be proximate. Be proximate. 
Jesus didn't come and set up an encampment outside in the desert and go, look, that's too evil. I'm going to set something up here and I'm going to invite you all out of the darkness because this is amazing. This is a little oasis of the kingdom of God called Orange County or whatever you may call it. <laughs> Jesus found where the darkness was and entered in. The light has come into the darkness. You see, Jesus Here he is entering into Jerusalem, a place of turmoil, a place of compromise, a place where the disciples said, please don't go to Jerusalem. It's dark. You may die. But where Jesus saw the darkness, he brought the light. John Stott, a great author, pastor, theologian of the last 100 years, was often asked, why did you stay in London? Why there? It's so compromised. It's so ugly. It's so heathen. The liberals are ruling and everything like that. And they said, why are you there? And he just said, look, wherever there is darkness, when you go into a dark room, you don't criticize how dark it is. You don't criticize why it's dark. You don't point fingers. You don't judge it. What you do is simply say, where's the light? Now, as Christians, when we go into darkness, our job is not to criticize the darkness, blame the darkness, shame the darkness, but realize that the darkness is dark because it's waiting for the light to come. And as Christians, we are the light sent into the darkness of this world. When Lizzie and I were thinking of moving a long time ago, we were in Raleigh, North Carolina, wondering where do we go? Lord, where are you calling us? We had opportunities to plant churches in lots of different cities. You know what? And maybe you're here thinking, you know, there's lots of opportunities for me to live anywhere. Somewhere more comfortable, cleaner, lower taxes. But I wonder what it would be if we all asked the question, where is it? As opposed to where is it cheaper to live? Where is it more comfortable to live? Where is it more in line with the light that I love? I wonder what if we ask the question, I wonder where Jesus is sending me as light into the darkness. We didn't choose Los Angeles because it is one of the best places to live in the world. We didn't look at the traffic and go, oh, I love traffic jams. Oh, I love high taxes. Oh, I love the transient nature of our city where you have to make friends every five minutes. Oh, I, I love the superficial conversations. I do, we didn't go, oh, yes. We felt the Holy Spirit call us as if Christians don't bring the light into the city. Who else will? Tim Keller influenced us greatly in his article, why live in a big city? He says this, Today's Christians had fled the cities, but then wonder why the church has so little influence on the culture. The late James Boyce wrote that the single most effective way for Christians today to be salt and light and a city on a hill would be for a large percentage of the nation's believers to move into the largest U.S. cities and live out their lives there. The modern church is fast losing cultural and economic force because it avoids the city. And the only solution is that a lot of Christians who are not naturally comfortable in and indigenous to the city 
will have to follow Abraham and live by faith, using the comfort and joy of the gospel to face the difficulties of being here and breaking through to the greatness of it. Abraham was called to leave a familiar culture and become a pilgrim seeking the city of God. What an honor that you've been called as a missionary to this city. Not to criticize how dark it is, but to celebrate that in you and others, the light has been sent into the city. Be proximate. That's why we're here. Okay, number five. Live the Jesus way. Live the Jesus way. Jesus invites us to live the Jesus way. Have you ever seen that show called Ted Lasso? Have you seen Ted Lasso? Who's seen Ted Lasso? About three of us. The rest of you need to watch Ted Lasso. But it's the story of an American football coach who moves to England to take up a job in charge of a soccer team. Very different sports. And he's hopeless at that. And they think, what on earth have you got to offer? And he goes, I may not know much, but we're going to do things the lasso way. And it's dramatically different to how every other soccer team is run. It's dramatically different to how other soccer teams train. Everything is dramatically different. It's the lasso way. And people are going, will it work? Will the lasso way work? And over this show, over the 10 episodes, you see the influence of Ted Lasso and his coaching because it's different. And when Jesus calls you to live in the city, when Jesus calls you to follow him, he calls you not just to a different set of beliefs, but to a different way of living. The Jesus way. Christianity has been reduced to believe a set of doctrines so that you get your ticket to heaven. Whereas Jesus always sends people into the darkness, not with a new set of beliefs in him, but a new way of living. The Jesus way. You are show and tell in your lifestyle for Jesus. He invites you in to live a new way, to live as you were designed to live, to live in a way that contributes to your flourishing and the cultural flourishing, to live a new type of way. And the, the myth and the deceit of today's Christianity, particularly in Los Angeles, is Jesus invites you to something called grace so that actually you can live just like everyone else and somehow feel that's what, uh, what the world wants. That you can just be like everyone else and Jesus loves you and therefore people will go, ooh, I'll have a bit of that, thanks. Whereas have you noticed most people that you meet in this city are longing for a better way to live, a different way to live. Because the experiment of consumerism, promiscuity, materialism, individualism has been tried and found wanting. And people are longing for someone to say, is there a different way to live that contributes to human flourishing? And in the midst of that, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem saying, follow me. Again, the cloaks that were laid down where I'm going to follow you not just with my head, but with my practice. I'm going to follow your way of living. Larry Hurtado did this great article and book on how the early Christians changed culture. 
how the early Christians exploded in popularity. And it wasn't because they wore togas and fit in with Roman culture. It was because they were countercultural. He identified five hallmarks of the early Christians that caused others to wake up and go, what on earth are you doing? And they said, we're living the Jesus way. He said these five things were this. They were the first to pioneer multiracial communities, showing the unity of the kingdom of God. They were the first to teach forgiveness and seek reconciliation with their enemies, as opposed to revenge and hatred. They were the first to care for the poor and suffering, not just in their own people, but in other communities. They were the first who were committed to the sanctity of life, of even the children who were thrown out and abandoned to die. And they were the first to revolutionize and show a different sexual ethic. See, all of these things were a radical differential to how culture lived so that people could see you are different and this is the Jesus way. Tim Keller writes this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. They were living the Jesus way. I wonder what impact you'd have and what we would have in our city if we decided to live the Jesus way. What we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our ambition, what we do with our influence, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our sexual ethic, what we do with our power. We are called to live the Jesus way. That people may see this is a better way of living. Okay, Six, expect suffering. Expect suffering. Verse 14, Jesus has just healed a blind man and a lame man, but it says that some were thinking, this is amazing, but in verse 15 it says, some saw what he was doing and they were indignant. See, when light shines in the darkness, sometimes the darkness embraces the light, but we know sometimes the darkness opposes the light. And when you are called to be proximate, when you are called to live the Jesus way, when you don't leave the city, but you know what, I'm going to dig in and influence for the kingdom of God here. Sometimes people are going to love what you do and sometimes they're going to hate it. It's the cross-shaped life where suffering is inevitable because you're called into the darkness. Jesus put it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and not live for themselves, but follow me and follow me into the darkness. Take up their cross and follow me. I grew up in a radically non-Christian environment. And we were trying to live out our faith with, with passion and sincerity, living the Jesus way. And over my youth and in my 20s when I was in London, I saw friends and myself lose out on lots of opportunities because of our faith. I saw people lose their jobs because of their faith. I saw families turn against people because of their faith. I saw people lose popularity because of their faith. Me and others, it was part of what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes people applaud and sometimes people push away. But here's the thing. 
It's time that the church starts to expect it and not run from it. You see, if your greatest goal is the avoidance of pain, you'll never follow Jesus because Jesus goes into the darkness. He brings the light into the darkness and it's messy in the darkness. It's painful in the darkness. People sometimes don't like it. Sometimes there's a personal cost to it. But when you're called to a city like LA, when you're called to be missionaries here, you've got to expect at times the suffering of following Jesus. The great news is that we're not alone in that suffering, that Jesus is with us. He cares for us. He comforts us. The church is around us, which is why it's so important to be part of committed to a local community so you can be there for each other, pray for each other, stand firm with one another. But whatever it is, don't be surprised, as Peter says in his epistle. Do not be surprised by the trials that you're experiencing. This is what it means to be part of a missionary calling to the city. Okay, in two minutes, I'm going to go through the final two. First is this, persistent endurance to make an influence wherever God has you. See, verse 14, the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. I look at Jesus' ministry and I'm confused because I would have thought he wanted to make a big difference in the world. Therefore, you go make a big difference by going to Rome, taking over, networking with the powerful people. Instead, he healed the ones and the twos, the, the nobodies, the lost, the least, the overlooked. In other words, it seemed to be that Jesus just made a big splash in the small pond of wherever God placed him. And that's what we're called to do as well. That we are to bring the kingdom wherever God has placed us. To bring renewal, to bring peace, to bring justice and mercy and grace. Not to think, I've got to make a big difference in the world and therefore I've got to get here, I've got to get there and I'm not going to do anything in between. No, the missionary calling is wherever you are, make a big splash. You can never determine the size of the pond God has placed you. Some of you have been called into positions of huge influence in culture. Some of you, like me, maybe not. We're not in control of where God places us, but we are in control of making a big splash wherever he places us. I want to give you some homework to do. Read two people how they persistently influenced the culture where they were placed that made a world-changing impact for the kingdom of God. One was a mother called Susanna Wesley. Mother to John and Charles Wesley. Read her story. She wanted to make a big splash and be in politics and everything else, but she couldn't for all sorts of reasons we should read at the time, amazing. But she was faithful where she was placed, made a big splash in parenting, and changed the world. And the other was William Wilberforce. He was placed in a position of influence and thought, you know, faithfully, what do I do here? And use his authority and use his influence to make a big splash. Wherever it is, God has placed you. Let me ask you a question. Where are you being placed to make a big difference for Jesus? Nobody may even see it, but he does. To bring the kingdom of God wherever he's placed you. And then finally, pray. Jesus comes in and he doesn't say, hey, my house is going to be a house of power, a house of networking, a house of celebrity. My house is to be called a house of prayer. We pray more than ever because we need him.
It's not by power, not by might, but by the Holy Spirit. We pray because prayer makes a difference. We pray because we need His guidance in all the complex decisions. Now, some of you may be called to leave LA. That's totally okay because we're led by the Holy Spirit. And then we pray to be filled. I don't know about you, but living in this city drives me back to being filled with the presence of Jesus. That every day I step into my calling, I step into my reason for being here. But that's only because I'm daily filled with his presence and daily filled with his power. Let's stand together.